0: You can turn to John three. We're picking up in our series in John three, verse twenty two. Uh, Jesus has up until this point been in Jerusalem for uh, the la- well, the early part of this chapter, anyway, and uh, so we pick up at verse twenty two. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was, uh, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and the Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us his word so that we can know him. So let's pray that he would reveal it by his spirit. Father, we thank you that your spirit is at work even through your word. That your word is not, the Bible is not merely an accident that we've received, but it is the very thing you've given us. So we can know Jesus. So we can understand what he's done for us so that our love for you might grow. And then as we see our lives rearranged by that love, we might even say that he must increase and we must decrease. So we pray that this would be true about us, even as we listen to your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So nearly two years ago, you remember as the pandemic set in, we were going to spend two weeks at home and we all binge watched you know shows on netflix and you know we and we all kind of discovered zoom in a new way thought that was really fun for 2 weeks and then 2 weeks kept you know getting longer and longer and after a while you started to hear people talk about how you know this pandemic was helping them think clearly about their priorities and starting to think differently about what it is they valued. And so, you know, may, maybe this was you. <laughs> and you started in on different projects. Maybe you were going to get in the best shape of your life. Maybe it was going to be more intentional family time. Maybe it was just going to be that you were going to keep that sourdough starter going in the back of your fridge. <laughs> it's still there, and it, you know if you left it out on the counter, it might engulf your house at this point, but the, we were going to reprioritize. Uh, I think for most of us, the reality is we didn't really reprioritize. We just really wanted to go out and be able to, you know, I don't know, have a drink somewhere, go out and go somewhere or shop somewhere or do something like that. Uh, yeah looming over, of course, this week has been the specter of war, uh, as Russia invaded Ukraine, and I think we all know it's not just another kind of border skirmish uh, of some country half a world away, uh, but the implications might be much more dire. And the specter of war, of course, also begs us to think about our priorities. It's interesting, the the prophets in the Bible often mention, Jeremiah in particular, three things, war, pestilence, and famine, because it's actually, it's a strange thing in life to actually think that we are guaranteed life and health and abundance. So we are, a lot of us feel a little Unnerved wondering about this. And what we see borne out in this story is people who are grappling with their priorities. What we see is the competitive threat to their priorities. We see somebody whose joy has been completed. It's a competitive threat, completed joy. And then we see contented humility. Humility. With somebody who has the right priorities. It's so a competitive threat, completed joy, and contented humility. Now, it's worth noting right off the bat here as we think about the competitive threat of our priorities, uh, the whole structure of this passage, because it's, it's actually kind of strange. I don't know, as you were listening to this, if you felt the shift at verse 31, but verses 22 to 30 tell the story. At verse 31... John the disciple who wrote the, the gospel steps in to offer comment. A comment. Some comments that may not make a lot of sense, but I hope as we unpack it, they will a little bit more. But this passage begins with John the Baptist. So we've got, we got a John who wrote the book, and then we've got John the Baptist who's actually, <laughs> the, the story is being talked about, so don't get confused here. We're all confused now. I got it. John the Baptist, uh, it, it opens really talking about his disciples. Now, he had baptized Jesus, of course, back in chapter 1, had said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as Jesus has gathered disciples and is sending them out, he's, he's been at Jerusalem, but now they're going out into the countryside around Jerusalem to the area known as Judea, which is sort of the southern part of, it, of Israel, Then John the Baptist and his followers start to hear about it. Now, they're somewhere up in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, or perhaps even into Samaria, which is kind of in the middle. We're going to talk about Samaria next week. But uh, they're somewhere around there baptizing. So they've kind of gotten word that Jesus is also baptizing. And then there's also this other guy, (laughs) another fellow Jew who seems to have gotten into it with them about the ceremonial purifications and probably what baptism means with that. We talked about that some when we were in chapter 1, about baptism was a conversion uh, rite at the time. So if someone was converting into Judaism, they would be baptized. But of course, John was saying, no, everybody in Israel needs to be baptized. Everybody, in other words, needs to essentially reconvert. So something's going on with this discussion. We don't know any of the details really about it, but something's going on with that. And then they start getting nervous because it turns out Jesus' disciples are baptizing people. I mean, they had the baptism market cornered, you know, and now Jesus' people seem to be doing this. It's like they're obviously nervous about it, right? They're saying, they're... um, They're particularly noting at the end of verse 26 that all the people are going to Jesus. Their movement that they had backed doesn't seem to be so important, so special anymore. And that's why they bring all this to to John, because the things that they thought were important, the things they had prioritized, don't seem to quite be as significant They want John to do something about this. And I mean, I don't know what they want him to do, but they they think he's going to have some answer for this. And John's response to start off with in verse 27 is telling. John looks at them and says, basically, don't you know that everything we have is given to us? Everything we have is given to us. It's curious then if you look at the down below in verse 31, Jesus is talked about as being the one who's from above. In other words, he is the giver. And in fact, what we find in verse 35 is that the father has given everything to the son. As the writer of the book is thinking about this, he is thinking about how even Jesus is someone who's been given something, right? And Jesus is the one who gives, And John encourages his followers to think that way about what they're doing, (laughs) is that everything they have has been given to them. Well, as we think about our competing priorities, right, I wonder if that's the way we think, because I don't think it is. Most of us think that we get to set our own priorities, We kind of get frustrated when other people think they can set their priorities, but I get to set mine. Right? Even now, we look at world leaders and we think, who do they think they are to set their priori- these priorities for themselves? And they may well be wrong, but I get to set my priorities. Watch out. I mean, we have lots of priorities, right? We're ambitious for a lot of things. You know, when you're, you know, you're, maybe you're setting career goals for yourself, things you want to do. And it's not that that's a bad thing. It's not that God doesn't think you should set, make any plans or set any sort of priorities and how you do things. But rather, do we have an open hand about it? Do we make plans but have an expectation that God may send us in a different direction? Or maybe you're disillusioned or disappointed in yourself and not achieving the, your priorities, or your priorities seem to just get frustrated. It's easy to get embittered in that moment, isn't it? It's easy to get frustrated. I, there's a letter by John Newton, the guy who wrote "Amazing Grace." He was a he, was, he had he had been a slave trader, came to the Lord, um, became a minister, started writing hymns. Uh, again, "Amazing Grace" is the most well known of those. But uh, he also was known for writing letters. People would write to him for advice, and there is one which he in which he wrote back to somebody who was frustrated with their situation. He says, "All shall work together for good." Now he's kind of summarizing Romans 8. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Be content to bear the cross. Others have borne it before you. You have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it. But there can be no settled peace till our will is in a measure subdued. See what he says there? There can be no peace for this man until his own will is subdued. We want so many things. You know, there's career goals, maybe there's other goals, maybe you've got relationship goals. People, friends maybe that you care about but we're frustrated when they don't meet what we want. But we are not our own. This is true. John has reminded his disciples of this. Paul, of course, tells us that multiple times in 1 Corinthians. We are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. Everything we have is given to us. Maybe it's family. Uh, When you get married, you think, of course, we're going to crush this thing, right? Like we're going to be awesome. And then a little time goes by and you start to realize it's a lot more difficult than you thought it was. Then there's parenting because everybody thinks they know how to parent and parenting make fools, makes fools of us all. It does, right? We think we have it figured out. We think we've got the right priorities. We think we know exactly how it should go. And it doesn't. And we are frustrated. Or heaven help us if we actually somewhat succeed. And we think we've got it all figured out now. We are not our own. When I was a young minister, I thought... Boy, I know how this is supposed to go. I know what everybody needs. There are lots of churches that fall into thinking we've got this figured out. We know what the kingdom of God needs, but we are not our own. The ministry is not mine. The church is not mine. The church is not yours. The church belongs to Jesus. I hope we're never a place that thinks we have it all figured out. Should we have ambitions? Should we have desires? Should we have things that we want to achieve? Yes. As a church, individually, for your family, whatever it may be. Yes, all of those things. But be ready that God might have something different? Are you tuned into that? Can you accept that something might be different than God has planned for you than what you had imagined? Well, as John goes on, he explains his completed joy that has changed his perspective, right? That has reprioritized his life he starts to talk in verses 29 and 28 with a very familiar metaphor. I say very familiar because all throughout the Old Testament, God portrays himself as the groom to Israel as the bride. That's a pretty routine metaphor in a number of places. And that's exactly the metaphor that John picks up, right? That Except here he's talking about Messiah as the as the groom. Which may maybe he understands what's going on there. <laughs> that Jesus is God, but maybe he's implying more than he even realizes, I'm not sure. <laughs> but his point is to say that he's realized all along that he was one who was sent ahead to make the arrangements. He is like the best man in the wedding. He's supposed to go there and make sure everything gets, gets going correctly, right? And then he stands and bears witness to the, to the marriage. In other words, when the groom shows up, right, his work is coming to fruition. And he takes joy in it, right? Why would he be upset? Why would he be upset as the best man, That the groom is getting married. Right? He has joy in that. He's excited about it. He's excited about this wedding. He's excited that God is showing up. That's what he's encouraging his disciples to see, right? Is that God is showing up. God is fulfilling everything that he's promised. And what's interesting is, in the commentary afterward, in verses really 32 to 34, we get more about somebody bearing witness, right? The best man got to bear witness, but then it talks about Jesus bearing witness. Jesus bears witness to what he's already seen and heard from above. And when you accept his testimony, you are accepting that God is true. And then in verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. What the writer of the gospel is reminding us is that we have the witness before us in the Word and by the Spirit. And isn't it interesting, the idea of the Spirit without measure, because the Old Testament experience of the Spirit was like a trickle. You know, and, and there would be occasionally people who would have this sort of full-blown experience of the Holy Spirit, but it would come and go. And what we are told is that when Jesus arrives, he, he doesn't hold back at all. He opens the spigot up fully. So the Spirit is poured out on his church. And the Word and Spirit work together. And they reveal... As he starts to talk about then in verse 36, the Son, and so we can have eternal life. You see, that's really the deal with Scripture and why we talk about Scripture so much is not because it's it's a really neat answer book. I'm looking for the chapter on what to do when Ukraine is invaded and I can't find it. I'm looking for the playbook for a pandemic and I can't find it. We can look for lots of things in Scripture thinking, isn't this supposed to be a playbook for every scenario in my life? And we would be wrong. Because the power of Scripture, while of course it does have lots of general principles that are good and right to lead our lives in different ways, the point of Scripture is to reveal the truth of Jesus and what He has accomplished. That's the whole point. And the reason we go to the Word, the reason we take the word so seriously is not because we think there's a lot of great trivia in there for us to know. It's not even that we think that it has moral principles that we can just kind of keep and we'll be okay. No, the whole thing tells us if that's how you want to approach God, good luck. It's not going to go well. No, over and over again, it's telling us who Jesus is. And it begins in the beginning with a history of God's faithfulness, right? Right from the word one. God's faithfulness to us. It goes through the history of His faithfulness to His people that He started with Abraham and Sarah, an old couple with no child. And how He sees that history through. And there are Myriads of mysteries that open up, of course, as that story unfolds, and yet all of those mysteries come back around to meet in Jesus. And the whole thing is the story of Jesus' love for us. This, whole, this book, here it is that we find the greatness of God. The greatness of God come to earth in the child of a peasant girl. In this book, we find the beauty of God revealed in the one whose likeness was so marred to be beyond human semblance. It's in this book that we find the grace of God in Jesus giving his life for us. It's in this book that we find the power of God at work in Jesus giving up his life for us. It's in this book that we find the wisdom of God. Seen in the foolishness of the cross and the resurrection, it is in this book that our hope rests. Not in the not in the physical pages of it, but in the word of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. You see, and in that regard, the word and the spirit are always together because the spirit doesn't have some other operation that he's running on the side. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. In 1 John 4 we're told to test the spirits and the way you test the spirit is it bears witness to Jesus. Cuz that's what the spirit's all about. John Calvin put it right that the, we that God works in us outwardly by the word and inwardly by the Holy Spirit. And the two go together. It is the primary, it is the first way in which God works in us is by his spirit through His Word. It is by the Spirit that we see who Jesus is. And so, by the Spirit and the Word, eternal life is sown into our lives because it is here that we meet Jesus. It's here that we see Him. This is why, you know, so often we talk about having, you know, private time or personal, you know, private worship or whatever, and that becomes… Such a burden, right? Like a checklist of I gotta, gotta make sure I get to the Bible today. And maybe you're following some sort of reading plan and you check it off, and then of course you miss a day, and then you feel beat yourself up about missing a day. And this is such a privilege to have this word. I mean that's the thing, right? Is like it isn't supposed to be a chore because in this is found life. In this is found the completed joy of John. This is where we find joy, in the life of Jesus, that he gave up for us, and that he took up again for us. This is what the word is. And the message of the Bible through and through is that we may have our priorities, but God has his, and his priorities will not fail, and his priority is to redeem you and I. And so you see, it is not merely that we are not our own, but we are not our own, but we're bought with a price. We are not our own, but bought with a price. You see, that's why John can let go. Because God's priorities will not fail. And whatever is going on in your life, whatever is going on in the world, we need not fear. We need not be lost in worry because God's priorities will not fail. It is guaranteed in the body and blood of Jesus. He will see it through. And this, of course, gets put into practice by John in his contented humility. The fact that he has understood the priorities of God and he wants his whole life to be aligned with it you know, he wraps up what he says in verse thirty, with he must increase, I must decrease. It's a verse worth remembering. And it's it's the most counterintuitive, strange thing, right? John is still bold, even though he's humble. He is bold because he knows that God's priorities are not failing. They will not fail. He has seen the Lamb of God. And do you know John's story? Do you know where it goes from here? Some of you may. The timeline isn't exactly clear, but it will not be long. It's already alluded to in verse 24 till John's arrested uh, by Herod Agri- Agrippa and will be put to death for what he's doing. And yet he has no fear. Why fear? God's priorities will not fail. Humility is born out not of confidence that we can do what we think or that our plans are going to come out, but a confidence in God that he will not fail. I mean, my plans, my priorities they're going to need some adjusting. But humility, if anything, is <laughs> its one of those virtues that is borne out over time. Do you remember in our confession of prayer this morning from John Knox, we pray to have the sins of our youth forgiven, but also the sins of our old age. And humility is one of those things that is borne out with time. because we're all pretty much self-obsessed when we start. (laughs) It's all we know. It's all we think about is me and my plans and my priorities. But the privilege of growing old in the Lord is to learn not my will, but his. He must increase, I must decrease. Humility and is the sure sign of a real spiritual maturity. That you think less of your own plans and more of the Lord's. That you have greater confidence that he will achieve what he has set his mind to than you will of achieving yours. There's an old hymn by Anna Waring. She's not that well known, a hymn writer. She wrote in mid to late nineteenth century. But it's called, Father, I Know That All My Life. And it's a terrible tune. So it's not one of these anybody ever really sings. The first verse says, Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. And the changes that are sure to come I do not fear to see. But I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. She goes on. There's a lot of great stuff throughout the, the hymn. It's like eight verses long. She gets to the last one in a service which thy will appoints there are no bonds for me in other words in the in the service that you design for me there's no bondage in that for my inmost heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free that a life of self-renouncing love is a life of liberty a life of self-renouncing love is a life of liberty This is the truth. We are not our own, but are bought with a price. So make your plans. Have your priorities. But remember that, they, that God might have other plans for you. Hope. Pray for those things, but be ready to be surprised. Ask for smooth sailing, but expect that at some point or another you'll have to learn some hard lessons. Start practicing the self-renouncing love that is liberty, but expect that you have more to learn than you ever thought. Uh, The reformer John Calvin, you may know this, he had no intention of ever being a pastor or being a minister. He, uh, He was French, had come around, he was sort of second generation of the... Of the Reformation, Luther was starting to get older around the time that he came along, and he decided to, he needed to leave France. He had started writing books, and that's all he really wanted to do was write books. And uh, he, he's passing through Geneva, and this guy, Guillaume Farrell, which is as French as I can make it, uh, w- <laughs> William Farrell, uh, found him that night, heard he was passing through town, and convinced him to stay. Well, after two years, the council of Geneva had enough and kicked him out. And he went to Strasbourg and loved it. It was fantastic. He met his wife there. It was great. There were other pastors there that he really enjoyed and learned from and loved working with. And after a few years, the council of Geneva started asking him to come back. Things had gotten worse. Apparently, they could put up with him now. And he wrote his friend, William, and said, I would rather die a thousand deaths than go back there. And then a few months later, when they kept asking him, this is what he wrote, William, again. He said, As to my intended course of proceeding, this is my present feeling. Had I the choice at my own disposal, nothing would be less agreeable to me than to follow your advice. Of returning to Geneva. But when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. We are not our own, but we're bought with a price. So let's learn to pray that He would increase, that Jesus would increase his priorities would be ours and that our own would decrease. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not our own. For when we are left to ourselves, good things don't happen. But because we are bought with the blood of your son, because he laid down his life for us, and because your spirit raised him back from the dead. We know that your priorities never fail, that your plans never disappoint. And though it may be hard for us to learn that lesson, though we often have to come back over and over again to reprioritize what we want, we know that following him that following that kind of life of self-renouncing love is really a life of freedom. I pray that you would convince us that it is worth decreasing, so that Jesus might increase and we wouldn't be disappointed. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.